Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a great show for you today. I am thrilled to have with me Dr. Jennifer Meeker. Jen is a CA3 at LA County USC Keck School of Medicine in Los Angeles, and she's taken a interest in a really interesting topic, which is that of cannabis use in our patients. So this is, I think, going to be a nice podcast to go along with the prior one that I did thinking about cannabis use in providers with um, some folks from Mass General. Now we're going to talk about the use of cannabis in patients. And Jen has really learned a lot and given some talks on this about how that can impact our anesthetics. So I'm really excited to have her here. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So why don't we start by me asking you to tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this topic? Um, Certainly an interesting and germane one that a lot of folks are going to be dealing with. What got you interested? So it was uh, sort of a little bit by accident. One of my mentors at uh, my residency program asked me to do a CME presentation at the California Society of Anesthesiology Winter Conference. And when we were kind of throwing ideas back and forth, cannabis and effects on anesthesia and considerations for anesthesia came up. And it was actually something that was requested by previous uh, people who had been at the meeting the year before. And then it sort of snowballed and became a a pretty fun presentation. A lot of information, unfortunately, not as much as we might like, but very interesting. Yeah. And as I said, this is something that obviously is only going to become more common. So uh, really, really good for folks to know about it. So why don't we start by uh, going over some of the terminology that's involved here so that as you go through it, folks can all be on the same page. What, What terminology do we use to discuss and what do you think is important for people to know? Sure. So uh, for the research that's been done and talking about it, the things you need to know is that cannabis is a plant, as everybody knows. Uh, It's made up of about 400 chemical compounds, and there are really only two, maybe three specific compounds of cannabis that are studied in addition to the cannabis plant itself. So it's THC, which is the main psychoactive component of cannabis, cannabidiol, which I'll refer to later as CBD, which most people probably know it as, and then cannabinol, which is a cannabinoid that's really only mentioned a couple times in research and not really used a lot currently, but just so that you have a frame of reference when it's mentioned. And then the other thing I just wanted to kind of touch on was the ways in which cannabis or cannabinoids are used. So primarily it's inhalational and ingestion. Inhalational has peak effects of about 15 minutes that last about four hours, and it's dose-dependent, as you might expect. And then ingestion has a peak effect of about 90 minutes and lasts about five to six hours. Again, dose-dependent, and it does have a pretty significant first-pass metabolism, about 25%. And then the last thing, which you may or may not remember the numbers, but 
the dose contacts of marijuana, uh, particularly with respect to THC. And I think it was actually mentioned in the podcast where you guys talked earlier about how the dosage of THC in cannabis products has kind of increased over time. And you really can get a variety, especially now that in many places it's relatively available recreationally. So the dose of THC in marijuana cigarettes ranges from maybe five to 23 milligrams uh, and can go beyond that as well, depending on what you're buying. Yeah, I, that you, good, good uh, reminder there. That reminds me that Dr. Fitzsimons on that podcast had mentioned that that, you know, that was news to me. That you know, I guess the your current uh, marijuana is not your parents' marijuana, right? It's much more concentrated, much much stronger, um, and so it's it's a really different thing and important to realize that. Um, and I think your point about inhaled versus ingested is is a good one too. And I, I've heard there there is also you know a variety of different um neb there's people who do it with a nebulizer versus you know kind of a more traditional smoking what's that vaping is also a big thing um i'm i don't i'm not going to talk about it today because it doesn't necessarily exactly relate to anesthesia uh but it's also good to keep in mind the different ways people inhale so vaping induced lung injury is actually a pretty big area of research right now and there are cdc uh warnings about vaping induced lung injury particularly with thc containing uh compounds yeah important to know thank you all right so frame for us the discussion what if we if we want to talk about the statistics how prevalent is this why i mean clearly we think it's important and but rather than just take that for granted why what is it that we're looking at in terms of how common this is yeah so you know as everybody probably knows marijuana legalization just continues to increase there are 11 states plus dc that have legalized marijuana for recreational use and 33 states plus dc who have legalized marijuana or a cannabinoid in some form for medical use. Uh, so the availability is getting more and more and probably will only increase. But then, you know, particularly for us, there has been some uh, data using national inpatient survey data between 2010 and 2014, looking at hospitalized patients. And they found a significant upward trend over that period of time of patients who have a diagnosis of cannabis use or cannabis dependence disorder. Uh, The average age of those uh, patients who are hospitalized marijuana users are about 36. And what they found was a relative increase in pretty much all age groups, particularly in the age group between 45 and 64. There was about a 15% relative increase in use in that group. And in the age range between 65 and 84, there was a 100% relative increase. And it's, you know, it's, it's inpatient service data. It's all what people report and potentially in places where it wasn't legalized yet. So it may be under-reporting those numbers. And then kind of to take it one step further, how it relates to us is in hospitalized patients between 2006 and 2015, there was a significant increase in discharge diagnosis of cannabis dependence or cannabis use disorder. So it really does affect us and the patients that we take care of. Yeah, it sounds like it's really as we expected uh, on the uptake and only going to be, I'm sure, increasing from there, both as it becomes, as you said, more legal in more places uh, where people are no longer deterred by, you know, the, the legal concerns. And of course, just as, uh, you know, more and more people are uh, picking up on maybe what we can call a trend. 
it'll be interesting to hear from you, um, you know, what, uh, as we go through, and I think we should go kind of pre-op, intra-op, and post-op to talk about some of what people should be looking out for, whether there are benefits to this, you know, whether this is something that's helpful or harmful, um, and what anesthesiologists need to know. So maybe we should start pre-operatively. What do you think is important for uh, folks practicing anesthesia to know? Yeah, so really quickly before I start, most of, of the things kind of pre-op, intra-op, and post-op probably could have been in any or all of the sections, and I tried to put them in sections that made the most sense, uh, but remember them for later sections. So for preoperative considerations, I kind of have one main system, and that's the respiratory system. So it obviously relates mostly to inhalation or all to inhalational marijuana, uh, but it's been shown that patients who chronically use marijuana in, in an inhalational form have symptoms of chronic bronchitis. So increased sputum production, coughing, wheezing, dyspnea. Uh, there are uh, at least one study that suggests additive effects of marijuana smoking and tobacco smoking together. And these findings of chronic bronchitis have been found when um, when taking into account people who are tobacco smokers versus not tobacco smokers as well. And then what they've done is look one step further and shown bronchoscopic data that shows evidence of this bronchial inflammation to support the symptoms of chronic bronchitis and that they are comparable to tobacco smokers and more than non-smokers. And then there are some studies who even took it one step further and looked at histologic findings and found similar destruction of ciliated epithelium and uh, replacement of ciliated epithelium with mucosal goblet cells and some other changes in marijuana smokers chronically compared to tobacco smokers and having them be relatively comparable and more compared to non-smokers. Okay, that's definitely significant. Is there any kind of definition of what makes a chronic smoker? Is it kind of gestalt, like if you smoke a lot for a while or is it, you know, X number of, I don't know, joints per week? Like how do we, what do we call a chronic smoker? So I will say, especially in most of the research that's available, chronic smoker is very, very poorly defined. And uh, one of the downsides of a lot of the studies that have looked at human humans and smoking and how it affects them, their delineation of what is chronic and their stratification of light, moderate, and heavy use is really very poor, actually. Some studies, you know, say once a week or you know, once a month for the last six months counts as chronic smoking. Interestingly, the the studies done looking at these symptoms of chronic bronchitis and changes bronchoscopically and histologically have a pretty good um, definition of chronic marijuana smoking. And a lot of them use something comparable to 10 joint years, which is, you know, an average of one joint a day for 10 years. So that is actually pretty significant. It's probably the best definition of chronic marijuana use of the rest of the studies that I'll talk about. Yeah, good. Okay, well, that's helpful. What about uh, carboxyhemoglobin? Obviously, for smokers of cigarettes, that's something we think about a lot. Uh, if they're actively smoking, we assume they have a potentially a carboxyhemoglobin concentration mm -hmm. greater than 10% on the day of surgery. What about marijuana? Same thing, different? Yeah, no, actually, uh, same thing, but worse. I was going to mention it in the intra-op section, but we can talk about it now. So marijuana smoking is actually associated with five-fold higher increase in carboxyhemoglobin saturation compared to tobacco. Uh, and so again, you have those concerns of, you know, decreased oxygen delivery to tissues and 
in the setting of some of the other changes that I'll talk about later, it's potentially even more concerning. And the thought as to why there is so much higher increase is potentially related to the inhalational pattern of marijuana smoking. So when somebody smokes a marijuana cigarette, they do a deep, uh, you know, vital capacity inhalation and they hold it for a longer period of time, though they do it less frequently compared to tidal volume inhalations more frequently with tobacco smoking. And it actually ends up that in the end, smoking a marijuana cigarette leads to about a 35% greater mean inhaled volume and four times longer smoke retention time, despite the fact that they do less frequent puffs. Uh, and so the thought is that that's the reason why there's this increase. And, you know, the, the data from tobacco smoking suggests that even within 12 hours, there's a significant decrease in carboxyhemoglobin levels, but that it can take up to 48 hours to go completely back to normal. And then you have this higher percentage associated with marijuana smoking. Okay, that's good to know and not something I was aware of. So even a more significant. All right. Other preoperative considerations or should we move to intraop? Uh, just as a, I guess, fun side note, because we are talking about, you know, chronic bronchitis symptoms being associated with marijuana smoking. Other things associated with chronic tobacco smoking have not kind of shown through in marijuana smoking. So there isn't evidence of obstructive lung disease on PFTs that have been found. There's no overt evidence of emphysema on CT scan or decreased DLCO. And the data is a little bit mixed, but in general, it doesn't seem like you have these obstructive patterns. And one or two studies actually suggest that these patients have larger lung volumes without the obstruction, and they have likened it to changes seen in uh, swimmers' lungs after lots of training. Mm, so interesting. potentially not all bad, uncertain. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right. So how about in the intraoperative period? I'm taking care of a patient. It uh, probably matters whether they're acute or chronically a user. Uh, so tell me, what, I'm, what do I need to keep my eye out for? So, yeah, so I have kind of two areas for the intraop, and one, again, is this respiratory section. And like we mentioned, there are blood gas changes that you can, you know, should keep in mind. The other is more my extrapolation from uh, tobacco-related data. So it's been shown in studies that patients who smoke tobacco, especially those who have symptoms of chronic bronchitis, which we already said that people who chronically smoke marijuana can have, are at increased risk of perioperative respiratory events. And these events include bronchospasm, hypoxia, hypoventilation, uh, mucus plugging, reintubation after planned extubation. And these studies in tobacco smoking showed increased risk of all of these respiratory events, more especially for patients who are chronic smokers and have symptoms of chronic bronchitis, even compared to people who are smokers and asymptomatic and definitely compared to non-smokers who are asymptomatic. So it's totally my extrapolation, but it seems relatively logical that if you are a chronic marijuana smoker, have symptoms of chronic bronchitis, you're potentially at increased risk and you should be aware of that. That makes sense. Um, so you're talking about, uh, you know, have someone who would have the same kind of symptoms as someone who's a chronic smoker or worse uh, with obstructive lung disease, wanting to be very careful of, for example, uh, the potential for auto peep development, uh, dynamic hyperinflation, um, being aware of oxygenation problems, excess secretions, all of those things. 
Yeah, all of those things, except for maybe the auto peep, because they don't have this obstructive pattern. So mm. that may be one that is the exception to the other potential respiratory issues. Good. Okay, that's good to point out. So not uh, at least that worry as much as you'd have in someone with uh, potentially long of smoking his uh, cigarette smoking history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, so the next big consideration is obviously the anesthetic that you need, how much you need for sedation, how much you need for general anesthesia. Um, unfortunately there's relatively minimal data in humans. Uh, so first I'm just going to touch on animal studies. So these were mainly done in the seventies using IV cannabinoids. And the primary goal of these studies was looking at cannabinoids as adjuncts to anesthesia in otherwise naive animals rather than in, animals that had been chronically exposed and then getting anesthesia. And they were mostly very large uh, intraperitoneal or IV doses of THC, CBD, and then a couple for cannabinol, which is really the only place it comes up. So for IV anesthetics, the effects are relatively wide ranging. With respect to THC, the majority of the studies showed prolonged anesthesia or a decreased dose of anesthesia needed for animals, though there were some that suggested the opposite. Uh, For CBD, it was potentially prolonged anesthesia or no effect. And then cannabinol, which is probably why it's not studied very much anymore, didn't really seem to have any effect. And then with respect to volatile anesthetics, the results were more uniform, and it seems as though THC uh, and cannabinoid receptor 1 agonists, which are the receptors of the endocannabinoid system located centrally, primarily uh, increased sleep duration with volatile anesthetics. Uh, And that's really all we have as far as animals. Uh, As far as humans go, there are several case reports that – describe extreme anesthetic requirements in patients who are chronic cannabis smokers. Uh, Just to kind of give you an example of one of those, one case report described a patient who smoked a gram of cannabis a week and had smoked the day prior in addition and required 200 mics of fentanyl, 500 of propofol, 500 of thiopental, bag mask ventilation with isoflurane prior to successful LMA placement, and then had to be maintained on 2.4% SIBO, 50% nitrous, and then postoperatively had a lot of issues with hypertension, uh, without a history of hypertension, and in the setting of potentially them saying no pain as well, Mm. which is something that we'll talk about later. Yeah, that is striking. So, it, does it matter, you know, when we think about, um, for example, acute or chronic alcohol use, right? That's uh, different in terms of whether someone's acutely intoxicated or is a chronic user who's not acutely intoxicated. Does that apply here too? You would intuitively think that it could, but I honestly can't answer it based on the information that's available. Because like I said, you know, the, the human research studies that I'll talk about, there's only three and they're delineation of a chronic user and their stratifications are very poor. And a lot of it is, or some of it is, is self-reported and it's, you know, a checkmark questionnaire, not did I use yesterday, but have I used within a week? Do I use it frequently? And so it's hard to really make those conclusions based on what's available, but you would think that it wouldn't matter. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Certainly from the case report you just cited, we should at least consider the possibility that someone who's chronically using, especially large quantities, may be fairly resistant to anesthetics. Correct. And so that kind of leads into the couple of research, uh, human research studies that have been done. There was one that was a retrospective chart review looking at 
sedation requirements for endoscopy. And it was self-reported uh, cannabis use at least weekly, but it was in Colorado after it was legalized. So the hope was that people would be more honest. And what they found was that for procedures, cannabis users had overall increased sedation requirements. They had 14% greater fentanyl requirements, 20% greater uh, midazolam requirements, and then propofol, which was used as sort of their last resort, they had 220% greater propofol requirements. Uh, and they found that the physicians uh, went to, or the, the providers went to propofol earlier with the cannabis uh, group than they did with the other group. And like I said, it was kind of their last resort. The uh, second study was looking at, it was a prospective blinded study looking at loss of consciousness based on BIS, uh, BIS less than 60 and successful LMA placement. And interestingly, they found that the propofol requirements for loss of consciousness based on a BIS less than 60 were the same between cannabis users and non-users, but that the propofol requirements for successful LMA placement were significantly higher for the cannabis group compared to the non-cannabis group. Um, so to me, that sort of indicates potentially two things. One, with all of its flaws as well, this maybe is not particularly reflective of depth of anesthesia in chronic cannabis users mm. and that potentially these chronic cannabis users have increased requirements for successful induction. And to kind of harken back to this lack of stratification in these studies, the authors of this study noted that there is a particularly wide scatter in the dosages required for propofol um, for induction in cannabis users, which I think could very easily be related to, you know, light users, moderate users, heavy users that hopefully yeah. somebody will look at in the future. Absolutely. And then the last study is maybe not necessarily related as much to, um, you know, induction or sedation requirements, but more related to this idea of BIS and how accurate the BIS is. And it's a blinded randomized controlled study that used uh, Sativex, which is a THC CBD medication that's currently being used for neuropathy and spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis. And so you either got a placebo or you got this Sativex pre-medication. And then they looked at BIS levels during general anesthesia. And what they found was that the Sativex group had higher BIS levels uh, during maintenance anesthesia when controlled for MAC. Uh, and so the author's interpretation of this was that the higher BIS wasn't necessarily related to depth of anesthesia, but changes in EEG patterns. So you could liken it to like what ketamine does with EEG patterns. Yeah. Um, but I think if nothing else, it sort of warns against the accuracy of BIS again, this in the setting of acute use and the other one in the setting of chronic use. So potentially not useful in either. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and and the theories as to kind of why chronic marijuana users may have increased anesthetic requirements, um, it's thought that it's centrally mediated and not metabolic and related to GABA-A receptor modulation via these cannabinoid receptors that are centrally located. And that potentially chronic cannabis leads to lower GABA neurotransmission, leading to increased anesthetic requirements. Yeah, because it certainly sounds like the most significant changes were with propofol. So that would make sense, at least compared mm -hmm. to, for example, the oh, opiates, yeah. which were, yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So we need to at least have that in mind intraoperatively. Um, other things? Those are the ones I have for intraop. The Most of the postoperative considerations you could also put into intraop and or 
uh, pre-op, and it is definitely the largest section of the two. Uh, but sure. that's all I have for intra-op. Okay, so let's move to post-op then and talk about those considerations. So uh, the first consideration, again, uh, I put respiratory first. Uh, and among the other things we already talked about, the last sort of tidbit is uh, isolated uvular edema, which is a pretty rare finding in and of itself and has a lot of various etiologies. But there are some case reports that have linked uh acute, heavy cannabis use to isolated uvular edema in the setting of an otherwise negative workup. Uh, And one of the case reports was particularly in the perioperative setting where the providers noted some uvular and tonsillar edema pre-op, and then post-op, the patient started having issues with obstruction, desaturation, and the areas were noted to be more swollen than before. And the authors Hmm. denied any issues with intubation or trauma with intubation. Um, And so while I'm sure if it is a true association, it's relatively rare. It's something to kind of keep in the back of your mind, both postoperatively if you have someone with obstructive issues that you've ruled out other things uh, or even in the pre-op for your exam. And the thought is that either marijuana burns at a higher temperature and so causes more irritation or that there's a, an allergic reaction that happens with inhaled marijuana related to marijuana itself or some type of contaminant associated with the cannabis. Okay, good to know. That could really be uh, disruptive, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, so the next section is uh, kind of cardiovascular in general, and I have a couple different parts to it. Um, the general cardiovascular effects Uh, based on the research available, can kind of be broken up into sort of low normal doses and then high continuous doses. So for the low normal doses, clinically what we see is increased heart rate uh, and it's dose dependent. It's been reported to be between 20 and 100 percent above baseline. And it's been seen both within the perioperative setting and outside of the perioperative setting. And there have been studies showing this increase in heart rate related to using local anesthesia and general anesthesia. Uh, And this increase in heart rate has been reported to last anywhere from 30 minutes to 100 minutes uh, postoperatively. There've also been shown to be an association with increased uh, inotropy, increased cardiac contractility, cardiac output, and increased myocardial work. And it has been consistently shown to not be associated with the anxiety or potential psychotropic effects that are associated with THC. And physiologically, what they think is happening is a stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system by these uh, centrally located endocannabinoid 1 receptors, as well as beta adrenergic receptors, and an inhibition of the parasympathetic nervous system, leading to increased catecholamines and then the downstream effects of that. So something to kind of keep in mind, particularly intra-op, but particularly post-op, if you have a patient with tachycardia, hypertension, that you've already ruled out all of the other things and you can't quite figure out what it is. Yeah. Um, so with respect to the the higher dose, continuous dose, it's something that's actually referred to a lot in papers, uh, particularly um, review papers. There's really only one study that found these things, but they saw orthostatic hypotension, supine hypotension, and relative bradycardia, so basically the exact 
opposite uh, of this other section. And they think that it's related to the exact opposite mechanism. So stimulation of the parasympathetic nervous system, inhibition of the sympathetic nervous system, uh, or potentially even insufficiency and maybe some direct vasodilating effects. So the study that saw this actually was looking at large doses of continuous oral THC dosing around the clock for a long period of time. And the dosing that they used was equivalent to smoking six THC cigarettes that were about 18 to 23 milligrams, which is the high end of what we talked about before, continuously, but in an oral form, so lasts longer. So they're basically getting high steady state plasma levels. So interesting, right? That, that, I mean, this, of course, we see with other things too, but this dose dependent almost reverse where low dose does one thing and high dose does the opposite. It's really interesting. And I will say, you know, when I was doing all the research for this presentation, you can go down a lot of rabbit holes because there are a lot of things that marijuana is trying, you know, studied in. And the molecular research that's been done is very similar to this where it's, it's very confusing. Different cannabinoids have different effects on the endocannabinoid system. Cannabis as a whole probably has a completely different effect. And then if you use agonists, if you use them at a certain dose, it has one effect. And at a higher dose, it has the opposite effect. Uh, so it's a really complex system that is not well understood. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So definitely depending on dose, you can see different cardiovascular effects uh, in terms of heart rate. Other things? So kind of one step further from that is uh, arrhythmias associated with marijuana use. Uh, And there's some observational data uh, that was looking at uh, marijuana users and associated arrhythmias between 2010 and 2014. And uh, one thing that they found is that patients who did have arrhythmias tended to be older. The highest incidence was in the age group of 45 to 64, and that the incidence of arrhythmias increased twofold over that time period. And that probably reflects this increase in marijuana use in hospitalized patients that we talked about earlier. But basically, the gamut of arrhythmias have been associated with marijuana use. The most common is AFib by far. Uh, The second most common is actually VTAC. And then pretty much everything else from PVCs, A-flutter, AFib, even AV block have been associated. Hmm. Um, And do we have any idea why? What What is uh, going on? Anybody know? So there aren't any uh, good theories that I have read, but I would assume that there's at least some relationship to this effect on increased catecholamines through the endocannabinoid system and stimulating the sympathetic nervous system that, you know, affects the same thing as increased heart rate and contractility and increased myocardial work makes you more prone to arrhythmias. Right. Then it'd be interesting to know if the the folks on really high dose that have the parasympathetic uh, activation, if they actually have less AFib, for example. So interestingly, there there is at least one case report, uh, and I don't know if there was a second one that was, uh, you know, a patient who used a lot and actually had AV block. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so they'd so, be more prone to that, but maybe maybe less prone uh, to the kind of sympathetic stimulated uh, arrhythmias. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. Interesting. And then even just one last step further for cardiovascular effects, there is this association that has been seen between marijuana use and myocardial infarction, actually. So there are some case reports that are particularly um, 
describing younger patients, so between 26 and 47, with no real past medical history that puts them at risk for MI or coronary artery disease, who prevent with, present with chest pain, hypertension, STEMI on EKG, and then kind of varying findings on angio. All except for one uh, did not have evidence of plaque rupture or previous stenosis and had anything from thrombus and occlusion to no thrombus to just decreased flow without stenosis. Uh, a lot of these case reports, it's sort of important to make a note of, are related to patients using SPICE, which is a synthetic cannabinoid that's thought to be about five times more potent than botanical marijuana and so potentially has more cardiovascular effects or more pronounced cardiovascular effects. Uh, but even beyond case reports, there are actually two studies uh, looking at this association between marijuana and myocardial ischemia. So one was looking at about 4,000 patients who had just had acute MIs and looking at exposures. And what they found was a 4.8-fold increased risk of myocardial ischemia within one hour of smoking marijuana, which was significant compared to uh, periods of non-use. And then that risk decreased to only one7 and was no longer significant in the second hour. Uh, so it seems that there is maybe some association, though overall it's a pretty, it appears to be a pretty rare trigger of myocardial ischemia. It was only, you know, about 3% of the population that was sampled. And for comparison purposes, the increased risk is a lot less than drugs that we normally associate with myocardial ischemia. So to give you a frame of reference, cocaine is associated with a 24-fold increased mm. risk of myocardial ischemia within the first hour of use. So much, much higher uh, yeah. than marijuana. And then there was actually a study looking, it was a retrospective study looking at post-operative patients, so our patient population, and found in, they found an increased odds ratio of post-operative MI of 1.88 uh, in the cannabis group compared to the non-cannabis group in uh, the setting of elective surgery. Okay. So interesting. Not, as you said, not kind of the sky high effect you might see with cocaine, but something to keep in mind. Yeah. And they think that it's related... There are a couple of theories as to what it's related to, but one um, is kind of this idea of an, a tired or inadequately supplied heart. So you have this increase in carboxyhemoglobin right after you right after smoking it, um, and potentially a decreased oxygen supply as a result. And then you have these catecholamine increased catecholamines and increased myocardial oxygen demand in the setting of not a lot of oxygen available, and maybe together they lead to this increased risk of myocardial ischemia, uh, or potentially, since we have older patients who are smoking marijuana more, uh, disruption of vulnerable atherosclerotic plaques in the setting of hemodynamic stress, and then a couple of other theories that kind of come less from myocardial ischemia, but other vascular events associated with marijuana use. Great. Okay. So that's important stuff to know. So we talked about the heart rate. We talked about the myocardial ischemia. Other things uh, that you think are important? So uh, to kind of go off of the cardiovascular effects, uh, PONV is something mm. that uh, is interesting. And again, not a lot of research, but 
you know, uh, cannabinoids, uh, particularly THC analogs are used for prevention of chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting and have some evidence to support the use in that. And so the question is, do patients have decreased or increased risk of PONV uh, when they are chronic cannabis users? And there is one retrospective study that looked at this, and it actually suggested that there was an increased relative risk of PONV in daily cannabis users compared to non-users that was just barely significant. And that significance disappears in, uh, you know, current but non-daily users. Interesting. Then, do, do you think that's because, because that's totally counterintuitive, right? Do you think it's yeah. because they didn't have their marijuana, like their re- their body is is used to it and now they don't get it? Yeah. So, and it's hard to know. So the, a couple of the confounders is potentially they, people who are more at risk for nausea and vomiting in their general daily life, maybe use it as a preventative and then they are therefore in, at increased risk of PONV or that they haven't smoked it recently enough and are maybe having some type of withdrawal type phenomena and so then are at increased risk postoperatively. And it seems like it's based on this one study, a relatively uh, weak uh, risk as far as PONV. So the higher your APFL score is with all of our known high uh, risk features uh, for determining PONV risk, the less of a factor this cannabis use becomes. So if there is this association, it's probably pretty weak. Uh, But as sort of an offshoot to that, you know, the question then becomes, can you use cannabinoids to prophylax against PONV, uh, which has actually been studied more. Uh, There are a handful of studies. And overall, it seems like it's not particularly useful for PONV prophylaxis either, that the mechanism of PONV is different enough from chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting that it's not useful. Um, And they've looked at, you know, oral uh, pre-medication with THC analogs, so nabilone, the same thing they use for chemotherapy uh, prevention in a couple of different doses, and just IV THC to avoid first-pass metabolism effects. And they have not shown any improvement in POMV rates. And actually the one study using IV THC ended up uh, stopping early at their interim analysis because they had really significant unacceptable adverse effects in PACU Hmm. with sedation and confusion. Okay. Interesting. So counterintuitive, but good to know about post-op nausea and vomiting. Um, What about other things like pain? Yeah. So Excellent question. Pain is probably one of the biggest ones. And, you know, cannabis and cannabinoids, one of the main things that they are used for is for chronic pain. Yeah. Uh, and so in cannabis users, so we'll start with chronic cannabis users and their postoperative pain. Uh, there are, again, case reports that suggest really high pain medication requirements, just Despite uh, multimodal techniques in patients who are chronic cannabis users postoperatively, to again to kind of give you a frame of reference, one of the case reports described somebody who needed an average of 120 milligrams of morphine via PCA, inc- as well as oxycontin, gabapentin, Tylenol, Tordal after an amputation surgery in someone who did not have a diagnosis of chronic pain preoperatively, mm. uh, and the. The studies uh, are suggestive of increased issues with postoperative pain, though by no means definitive. Uh, There's a study that looked at um, 
self-reported cannabis and cannabinoid use and found increased in early post-operative pain scores, but interestingly, no difference in opioid consumption in the first 24 hours. Uh, another looked at uh, post-operative pain in the immediate period within six hours and found that cannabis users had significantly increased pain scores, required more post-operative analgesia in the first six hours, and then not surprisingly had less satisfaction with their post-operative pain management. And then the last uh, one was looking at patients who are status post-bariatric surgery and found higher morphine equivalents uh, required in the marijuana group. But interestingly, no difference in post-op pain scores. So yeah. the findings are a little bit heterogeneous, but potentially suggest increased pain or increased pain medication requirements. Um, and, you know, the the thinking is that potentially this is related to, again, a withdrawal phenomena that, you know, relatively shortly after cessation, uh, you get this withdrawal that then lasts between two and six days. So the period of time that people are hospitalized postoperatively uh, and that it leads to hyperalgesia and opioid resistance. And then there may be some component of cross tolerance with opioids. You know, there's molecular research that uh, suggests there's an interaction between the endocannabinoid system and the opioid system, which is part of why it has been used for uh, pain syndromes and that maybe cannabis tolerance can also lead to increased opioid resistance. Um, and then, you know, kind of going as an offshoot of that, that we use cannabinoids and ca cannabis to treat some chronic pain syndromes. Can we use cannabis or cannabinoids to treat post-operative pain rather than, mm -hmm. you know, how chronic cannabis use affects these patients? And there are a number of studies uh, looking at this. Two of these studies, which used uh, THC analogs and a THC-CBD combination, uh, found that it was potentially helpful in treating postoperative pain, though they did have significantly increased adverse effects, uh, which is something that we're attempting to avoid with opioids as well as uh, opioid addiction. And then yep. there were actually six studies that showed that THC or cannabinoid receptor agonists were no better than placebo. Uh, some of them showed that they were inferior to ibuprofen, inferior to meparidine, and actually one that showed uh, increased in pain scores with a high-dose THC group. So overall, it seems like cannabinoids are not particularly useful to treat acute postoperative pain, and they're not going to replace the things that we already use. Uh, the one caveat being that all of these studies excluded patients who are chronic cannabis users. So if we think that this increased in postoperative pain is related to chronic cannabis use and maybe withdrawal, maybe the patients that would benefit from it would be those who are chronic cannabis users having difficult to treat pain and that an adjunct, a cannabinoid adjunct may be useful for them. And there's not really any studies looking at this there's a case report that suggests it might be useful, but that's one area where it might pop up as, as something to use. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. This is kind of like patients who are on a chronic beta blocker, right? It makes sense if we can to continue it. I would think similarly, obviously alcohol, right? We don't want people abruptly stopping alcohol that can lead to major problems as we know. And it makes intuitive sense to think that it might be the same in chronic marijuana users, but it would be interesting to uh, see as more data comes out. Exactly. And that's kind of my last section for uh, post-operative considerations. Great. Well, I think a lot of really good stuff to think about there and to honestly keep our eye out as more, uh, more studies come out and we have more data. And as we all get more experience treating patients uh, with this going on, I, I think for me, and uh, you know, I'm sure you do the same, 
it just learning about this from you has certainly made me think, you know, I should make sure to ask about this in a, in a way. And of course, it's going to be easier in a state where it's legal and harder in a state where it's not for the moment. Yeah. But, you know, it's a good thing to get a feel for so that you might be able to explain some of the things you see that are, you know, might seem like mysteries intra or post-operatively. So I think that's great. Is there any anything you want to kind of highlight as we summarize here and move toward the end? Uh, yeah. So just kind of uh, putting everything together because, you know, like I said, a lot of it could go in every section. But, you know, think about pre-op clinic. Should you be counseling patients in pre-op clinic about marijuana cessation like you do with tobacco cessation to try and decrease the potential risks? And then kind of like you said, when you see somebody in the morning of asking a detailed social history, how often do they use? How much do they use? A lot of times people even know the milligram dosing that they use and uh, when they last used. Um, You know, in your review of systems, asking about symptoms of chronic bronchitis or hyperreactive airway issues, palpitations, arrhythmias, things like that. And then there, there is this debate about elective surgery and should you delay elective surgery and wait for somebody to stop smoking or push it back if they just smoked that morning. And there are no good guidelines and there's no good data. There's some, some people suggest, you know, you should wait 72 hours after the last cannabis exposure, but it's sort of a timeline picked out of nowhere, but something to just kind of be aware that it is a debate and it's something that comes up. And you know, when you're counseling your patient or you're consenting them, do you kind of highlight certain things in your consent because of the things that they're increased risk for? So if you have a patient who's got COPD and is symptomatic, do you talk to them about increased risk of respiratory complications? Should you talk to your chronic marijuana patient who has symptoms about that? Should you talk to them about an increased risk of awareness under anesthesia or potentially increased risk of post-operative pain? And right now we probably don't have enough information to do that, but something to kind of keep in mind. And then intraoperatively, be aware that you may have increased anesthetic requirements. Maybe don't rely too highly on your BIS. It may not be particularly accurate. And then, you know, for post-operative Think about multimodal analgesia, regional techniques. If you were going to do a single shot block on somebody, maybe they should get a catheter. Uh, be aware of you know the cardiovascular and respiratory risks. Awesome. This has been so helpful and I think really useful for a lot of folks. So thank you. Uh, why don't we turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations? Do you have something uh, that you've been doing or enjoying during this time of COVID that you would <laughs> recommend to folks? Uh, So I have two things and they are both food related. Uh, So one is a cookbook actually, because I do very much enjoy cooking and sometimes it's hard to find the time to cook the fun recipes. So there is a cookbook uh, by Milk Street called Tuesday Nights and it is a delicious cookbook that is, I feel like made for residents, the sections rather than being appetizers, entrees, desserts are broken down into fast, faster, fastest, (laughs) how long it takes to make the actual meal. So I highly recommend it. That sounds Uh, awesome. So like, what is, what are we talking about? What if, if fat, what is a fast number of minutes? And so fast is 45 minutes. Faster is like between 30 and 45 minutes. And then fastest, I think, is maybe 15 minutes or 20 minutes or something like that. I love it. I love it. That's great. All right. Milk Street, uh, Tuesday nights, the cookbook. All right. Yeah. 
And then the second one is uh, a random discovery that I picked up from a winery in Temecula a while ago. It is smoked cream cheese. Uh, so if you have a smoker at home, it is the simplest thing in the world. You get a block of cream cheese, you put it on tinfoil, and you stick it in a smoker for several hours. And it is just the most delicious thing. You can put it on everything, and it will mm. blow your mind. Can you do it without a smoker? Or probably not. I don't know. You Maybe you like no, put it on your it, grill it, or something. I mean, you could probably put it on the grill on low and then put the smoking wood in there and you would get a similar effect. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Wow. That sounds delicious. Um, all right. Well, I usually have something food related, but I'm going to change it up. And um, there's, uh, I actually, this was recommended on a podcast that I was listening to a while back. It's a sort of a family um discussion stimulation game called Vertelis, V-E-R-T-E-L-L-I-S. I'll put a link in the show notes, but it is a deck of cards uh, with different questions and some kind of uh, very easy little activities. And uh, it's a great, uh, if anyone out there has kids and, you know, you're kind of often you ask your kids, especially my kids are, you know, uh, my older two at least are seven and nine and they come home from school and you say, how was school? And, you know, they say, good. And it's hard to, you know, like, what do you talk about? So this is great because it's kind of, they think it's a ton of fun. They can take turns picking questions from the deck and asking the family and everybody goes around and answers. And they're very, you know, easy. They're good for that age group. I would say anywhere from about age, you know, maybe six on up. Um, They're fun. They're not too risque. They're uh, good conversation stimulators. The kids think they're fun. They're interesting. And it's a good uh, conversation starter for like a family dinner, or you could even just sit around uh, and have a little family evening of chat. So a lot of fun. Vertelis. Uh, I have no relation to the company and don't make any money from it, but uh, it's been a lot of fun for our family. So that is what I recommend. All right, Jen, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making the time. Good luck with the rest of your CA3 year and early congratulations on finishing training, which while it may still seem like a long way off, we'll be here before you know it. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. All right. That was great. Really useful stuff. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. You can join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And you can also join the Facebook group. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make individual donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who've already made donations or become patrons. We really appreciate it. It means a lot. Big thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, who is our tech lead, to student Dr. April Liu, who is our social media manager, and to Dr. Kimmy Akash Cooley, who is still helping out and a member of the team. They are fantastic. Of course, our original ACRAG music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Jen Meeker, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.